Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 14. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Greetings, Christina. How are you today? Wonderful. I'm so excited to have our guests returning for part two. I know. I, I want to take a moment to wish everyone uh, a welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman. I'll be your medical guide today as we travel through the healthcare galaxy looking for ways toward optimal health. Yes, as you said, uh, this is very exciting. We were with Dan Diamond last week. Uh, uh, he is a student and teacher of traditional Asian medicine. He's a doctor of Asian medicine, and he gave us a wonderful uh, conversation with a lot of knowledge uh, about the history of uh, Asian medicine and acupuncture with a lot of the theory and we felt that he needed to be back on so that we could talk a little more about the actual practice and how it works. So I would like to introduce again our very special guest, Dr. Dan Diamond. Welcome, Dan. Thank you, Glenn. It's a pleasure to be here. Hello, Dan. Thank you Hello for honoring again, us again. <laughs> We could certainly summarize, but there was there's so much more that I want to go through. So I would suggest that everyone go back and listen to the uh, first episode, episode 12. Oh, I, so I do believe it's episode 13. This one now? Uh, this one is 14. This one's 14. Okay, this is 14. So go back to 13. Thank you, everybody. And uh, go back to that one and uh, catch up with us. And let's move ahead now. When we were when we were talking before, uh, just near the end, we were talking about tongue diagnosis, and the Ayurvedic uh, community has an actual tool where they do a, a cleaning or a raking mm -hmm. of the tongue. Are you familiar with that? I am familiar with it, but I'm not trained in that method. What I what I want to ask you is is that does that influence if somebody came and raked their tongue before coming to see you for uh, for your diagnosis, would that affect that at all? If it was immediately before, yes. Mm -hmm. If it was a number of hours before and they were pathologically inclined to have a particular type of tongue coating, it would come back. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So it depends on how much time has elapsed between the tongue scraping and my seeing it. Is there a health aspect to the tongue scraping from a Chinese um, point of view? I don't think so. I know there are those who say that it's very important for doing that. And it probably feels better if one has a thickly coated tongue to scrape it. So there might be some there might be some aspects of health, but whatever put the coating there is the core issue. So scraping it off doesn't deal with the source. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good point. Uh, I like that. So let's let's move on. As the as the medical guide again, I want to give everyone all of our viewers an idea of where we're going to try and go today. And I think that I want to move away from the theory and, and go into the actual practicality of traditional Asian medicine. And I want to, at some point along the way, start talking about how they're starting to combine and integrate uh, in the practice of Western medicine. When I go to China, they're 
clearly they do both Western and Eastern oh, yeah. medicine in their hospitals. It's not as uh, prevalent here, but I mm -hmm. want to talk about that at some point, and, and then we'll see where we go after that. So let's start with, with in terms of the question in Western medicine always is something has to have a scientific uh, study that is uh, double-blind, placebo-controlled, meta-analysis uh, with a prospective crossover uh, program. Does anything like that happen in Chinese medicine? And no, not in Chinese medicine, but for Chinese medicine to be accepted in the Western medical community, it has to happen to Chinese medicine. So and, I, being, and I think there's some, there's some trend in China to try to do more studies, but th a lot of the studies are not to the standards that are accepted by the Western scientific model. I did go to a conference in town where they were bringing in a group of uh, traditional Asian medicine doctors who were also MDs. And they came over and put on a presentation with a number of cardiologists, and they were trying to do studies that would show the difference between somebody that might uh, have a heart attack and need some kind of a procedure, uh, a stent, we might call it, where mm -hmm. we put in a little tube in the vessel to help keep it open. And they were doing, they were trying to do a study that showed a group of, of the one arm of the study showed people that just had the stent. Another arm of the study showed people with a stent and acupuncture. Mm -hmm. And another start, uh, arm had uh, people with the stent and a sham or placebo acupuncture. Mm -hmm. And they, they seem to be having good results with that. Have you looked at any of those studies or seen I, anything I that your colleagues are doing? Yes, I have. The... It's an interesting thing because sham acupuncture still could have a needle penetrating in the body, which, like a trigger point, could have a metabolic, chemical, or some energetic effect. Some of the studies that I've seen that compare acupuncture to sham acupuncture to no acupuncture show the acupuncture and the sham acupuncture both working fairly equally well and better than no acupuncture. But I've also noticed some studies that then try it longer. And it's after the first four or month, four or five months or so, the sham acupuncture does not no longer has the effect that the I say real acupuncture, but he, meaning the acupuncture that's uh, suited to that particular person. True acupuncture is not for a disease; it's treating a person, and so that automatically makes it difficult to study because that would mean people would be getting different treatments, not the same treatment depending on their tongue, their pulse, their constitution, and their history, not just the name of their condition. There are a handful of scientific studies that have been published that I find absolutely fascinating and revealing. One of them is the endorphin study. It was done many years ago by, I think, Dr. Pomerantz. And he did a, he, it was an elegant study. It was blind. It was properly blinded, I believe. They used an acupuncture point between the index finger and the thumb, known as hoku, which is on a meridian that runs up toward the teeth. And they were using it to test for blocking pain on a tooth. And they found that when they put the acupuncture needle in and stimulated it, they would then use a device to, to put an electric shock on the tooth. And the patient would tell them how much electricity needed to be emitted before it hurt. 
they did it with no acupuncture or they did it with acupuncture. It was consistently better with acupuncture, but that didn't really tell them anything. Rather than go for sham acupuncture, what they then did was they introduced naloxone, which blocks the binding sites for endorphins in the body. Under the influence of naloxone, the acupuncture did not work anymore. That was fairly conclusive to medical doctors and researchers that acupuncture definitely caused endorphins or endogenous endogenous opiates to be released into the body. They didn't know the mechanism, but they knew it was consistent and predictable. That's why, for the most part, Western medicine today looks at acupuncture for the treatment of pain relief and Mm. not much more because that study did, did make it into a journal. That is a good point. We do use it for pain relief, but I think one of the other uh, areas that it is used and recognized by the National Institutes of Health and NCAAM, the Complementary and Alternative Medicine, is also for for nausea at times. Nausea, especially related to chemotherapy. The NIH has agreed that it is useful for turning a fetus in the womb that is presenting incorrectly, and I have done that many times and had a baby flip. Um, nobody. The problem is the mechanism is largely unknown and very difficult to find out. So they are finding out things that it can predictably help, but still do not really know the mechanism. But I got to share some of the studies that really fascinate me. They're done at UC Irvine using functional MRI or fMRI. Is this Dr. For, Shin Lin? Yes. Uh, for, I believe it's him. For instance, there's a point on the fifth toe that's part of the Tai Yang of leg, also known as urinary bladder meridian. It begins in your eye, goes all the way down your back, and out your fifth toe. They found that st- stimulating a point at the corner of the nail on the fifth toe c- caused changes in the visual cortex in the brain under functional MRI, more blood flow and changes. They found that stimulating a point on the Shaoyang or gallbladder meridian, which also runs to the ear, stimulating a point on the toe, on the fourth toe, caused changes in the auditory cortex in the brain. So here is some connection that nobody knows how it's being made, but there is clearly a feedback loop going on between the peripheral nerve and the brain and it, it's it, the all of the data seems to show that something is definitely going on. No one's really sure how. Mm. I th- I think the hypothalamus might be an important link, which is a link between the nervous system and the endocrine system in the brain. But nobody still knows the true mechanism. You you talked about uh, how in Western medicine we treat disease, in Eastern medicine we treat uh, people. Uh, uh, right. That wasn't the word. What was the word that you actually used? I think I used the patient, perhaps. I'm not sure how I said oh, it. Oh, okay. So I I always believe that this is an important part of what Western medicine needs to learn from Eastern. There are many parts I also think that Eastern needs to learn from medicine, uh, from Western medicine. But in the process of treating the whole person, so I look at someone, I take a history, I do the listening, like you say. I take, I do a physical examination, and then I start thinking about a differential diagnosis. Is this person's chest pain coming from a heart problem, a lung problem, a rib problem, uh, some other, so a psychological problem? And then I run different type of tests if I need to, either blood tests or 
laboratory tests, uh, imaging studies. So what goes on in your mind as you're doing your listening and your tongue diagnosis and your pulse? What are you thinking of in terms of the person? If the person came with chest pain, I would want that person evaluated allopathically first, unless I thought it was a chest pain from a rib injury. So to answer that question, I wouldn't even try a differential diagnosis if, that, if, if, if a person had unevaluated by an allopathic doctor with chest pain. I'll use you passed, bronchi- you passed that test, Dan. Thank you. <laughs> secret test. I had a feeling you were challenging me, Glenn. Um, let me use another example. Let's use bronchial asthma as an example. That was you my listen- second choice. <laughs> so that was your, so I can this is it. So you know, a Western doctor, to my mind, would you know listen with a stethoscope, listen to wheezing, get a history. <clears throat> excuse me, excuse me. Um, get a uh, health history on this, and probably. Pretty quickly, maybe a chest x-ray, but probably not, if they determined it was bronchial asthma, probably pretty quickly uh, prescribe, well, maybe albuterol, maybe a steroid, some inhaler, maybe some pharmaceutical pill. Mm -hmm. I would say, okay, did this well, first of all, was was it childhood allergic asthma or adult intrinsic asthma? And even Western medicine realizes that there is a type of asthma that happens in adults that they didn't have as a child that's not allergic and is some own in, some unknown intrinsic cause, which I believe is grief. And I've seen too many patients mm. who develop asthma after they've been by the bedside of a dying loved one. Mm. So I would look at, look, at, take their, look at the history and then I would find out, is this person hot or cold? Is, is, is it phlegm easy to expectorate? Is there any phlegm? Is the cough only dry? Do they wheeze only on inhalation, only on exhalation? Tongue and pulse. I would uh, palpate points under the clavicle in the center of the sternum to check for fullness in the lung. I would palpate the upper back between the second and fifth thoracic vertebrae and the paraspinal muscles. And get it and get my information that way and treat with acupuncture and herbs. And if they really needed something, I mean, I don't like to step on medical doctors' toes, I would say get albuterol for an emergency, but please wait before you start using a steroid and let's see what we can do with this first. I think so. if you're going to step on our toe, you should step on the visual cortex portion of the toe. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Maybe that would help us. I would also like to uh, tell our listeners that when you mentioned uh, the lung and grief, it might be a good idea to go back to last week's talk where you talked about the five elements and the different organs that were related to them and the emotional component. Uh I can mention those again. And I also thought I didn't mention this to Christine when we were done. Or is it Christina? Oh, either. I'll I'll answer to both. Just for you, though. I just want to be right. Um, so the, of, of the five zong or solid organs, the heart is attached to the emotion of joy. What does that mean? Joy is generally considered a good thing, but it could mean the total lack of joy or it could mean misplaced joy. I've had patients tell me this horrible thing that happened and then they laugh. That to me tells them there's some aspect of their spirit and their relationship to joy that's a problem. The heart, uh, let me go to the, to the clockwise on this chart. Next is the, is the earth element that would be spleen or tie in. 
The emotion attached to spleen is overthinking, too much dwelling in the past, constant recogitating of things that you need to let go of. The spleen is also, oh, the heart is also attached to fire or heat. The spleen is attached to dampness as being a bad element for it. Somebody who lives in a basement apartment in San Francisco may end up with spleen or tie-in issues from all the dampness they're dwelling in. The next organ in line is the metal element or wood or water, or excuse me, metal or air. The zong organ is lung. Its emotion attached to that is grief, unresolved grief, too much grief. Next, and the uh, the oh, they have a direction. Uh, everything. I mean, the heart, the fire is the fire element or heart is to the south. The spleen or earth element is central. The metal or lung element is east. They have a season attached to them. Autumn goes to the lungs. Anybody who has lung things every autumn, we look to that element. Every element has a season, a flavor, an emotion, a taste attached to it, a direction. Uh, the next one in line is wood, excuse me, is water or kidney or tie-in of the foot, which is uh, fear, and it is involving the north. It is involving coldness. And the next one is the wood, which is involving anger. It is to the east, and it is wind, and it is springtime. So how about somebody who, in the springtime, when the wind blows from the east, they get allergies, and it really makes them angry? That sounds fairly familiar, and that is clearly a wood element disharmony. One of the things that just amazes me, too, about Chinese medicine, I was talking about the solid and hollow organs last time and the gallbladder being both because it had a precious fluid. How did they know this stuff? <laughs> this is thousands of years ago, and they were right on about organ function and anatomy. Amazes me. It's fascinating when you look back at all of that with the Egyptians and what they knew and the Greeks and what they yes. knew and, and generations even before that. Mm -hmm. We, we mm -hmm. seem to be a very curious species, and within yeah. that species, there are always those people that want to know. And then within that, there are those people that want to be healers. That's so it's right. a great part of that. And in all of those ancient traditions, the Egyptian and Greek included, they were all holistic. They treated the patient, not the disease, and they looked at the relationship of the person to their community, to their environment, to everything. Mm. And then what happened to us at this day and age? I think, <laughs> we, I think microscopes and blood tests gave us so much, but also put some blinders on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There was a... Uh preface in one of the versions of the Yellow Emperor's classical medicine, where they asked the question about uh, whether or not they wanted to include technology in, in uh, the treatment, the continuing treatment of traditional Asian medicine. And they, they kind of warned against technology for some of those very reasons, that they would lose the holistic aspect of it. So I think that partly happened. But on the other hand, we did get a lot of information out of that. When I was in China visiting a number of hospitals, they all used uh, MRI scanners for a lot of diagnoses. But in the same aspect, down in the basement, they had a large herbal, herbal pharmacology uh, area. And in another portion of the hospital, they would have uh, the acupuncture and the moxibustion going. Let me ask you a question about that. That's always been the talk of one of the most intriguing parts of 
of China uh, was went around President Nixon and a reporter went and they talked about somebody having a surgery that uh, they didn't use general anesthesia. They used acupuncture. And when I went there, I certainly wanted to see that and witness it for myself. They didn't really open us up to that and we didn't get to witness it, but they did say to us that it was more for surgeries above the diaphragm. They used it a lot in thyroid surgery, for example, but I had never witnessed it. Have you ever witnessed it or do you have more information for us on that? Yes, I have some. The easiest areas to anesthetize are the thorax, the throat, and the head. Hmm. Anything, any, any of the appendages are much more difficult and anything lower than that. Um, in China, it was James Reston, was Nixon's press secretary. He did not have anesthesia for his appendectomy. He had acupuncture for post-surgical pain that was very effective. And that got this country interested, and they found out that China was using it for anesthesia. And so in the early 70s, they started exploring that in this country for many reasons, perhaps technique, skill, uh, the type of patient, the speed of surgery. Uh, American surgeons tend to work faster for a variety of reasons, probably minimizing infection and maybe seeing more patients. In China, when you're doing a, in, an abdominal surgery with acupuncture anesthesia, you have to work slower, be less aggressive retracting organs, and they do use an injection at the surface of the skin for the actual incision. Mm. Um, so there's a number of reasons why it didn't take off in this country. I don't know why they didn't let you see it. I've heard of brain surgery where you can talk to the patient, which is great. Um, I have done it a number of occasions for dental work, for extractions, um, not for root canal, extractions and crowns and fillings. I had it done on myself. And it is a complete block. No wow. pain whatsoever. The dentists are always fascinated. One, my dentist once said, but he, he said they also use something in the procaine injection to minimize bleeding. He was worried about that. The acupuncture seemed to be homeostatic. There was no problems with bleeding. And uh, it lasts for quite a while after the dentistry is over. Wow. I had one situation where I met a woman who was in emergency. She was emergency dental pain. She had a number of things that needed to be done. She was allergic to procaine, and I met her on a Saturday morning, and her regular dentist wasn't there, and they couldn't find the records. And I was, I gave her, you know, they, she knew approximately which teeth needed to be done and which was the most painful. So I set her up with acupuncture anesthesia after about these are points on the hands, feet, and face with electroacupuncture. After about 15 minutes, the dentist came in and said, well, is she ready? And I said, I don't know. You tell me. I left the needles in her hands and feet, took, uh, took them out of her face. He reached in. He started probing, and he couldn't find anything. And he said, I don't – it was for a root canal. He said, I don't want to kill a healthy tooth. We can't find her x-rays. Her dentist isn't here. It's on a Saturday. And he looked at me and he goes, well, how long is this going to last? And all I could do is shrug my shoulders and I have no idea. And so he sent her home without doing anything. And I followed up on it the rest of that day and the entire next day she felt fine. By Monday morning, her pain returned. She went to a regular dentist. They found the records and they were able to do the procedure that was necessary. Wow. So anyway, it, it really does. And then – I accidentally told my malpractice carrier that I did acupuncture anesthesia for dentistry. 
and they dropped me. <gasps> and so I called and said, why are you dropping me? And he said, well, because you checked that you did this. And I said, and he said, this is a problem. And I said, well, why? And he said, well, if the dentist slips, everybody in the room is getting sued. Mm. I totally understood that. And I said, okay, I haven't done it in nine months. If I sign an affidavit, then I will never do it again. Will you reinstate me? And he said, yes. So I had to do that. The only times I've done it since have been on myself. Mm. <laughs> and I'm That's not going to sue. Uh, and we won't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I mean, as an individual, um, what if we sign something, a waiver, to say that you know whatever happens happens, and no one's going to well, get? I'm not going to sue anyone. It, you know, that depends on the person, and, and I would probably still go do it if the person wanted to. And I knew them, and I trusted them. And I, I would never it. tell my and I wouldn't tell <laughs> and I wouldn't tell my my, my, my malpractice carrier. The only person I wasn't able to anesthetize, I've done it about 10 times with dentistry, was a woman who had a problem in one of her uh, front teeth, bicuspid, I think it's called. Mm -hmm. And those are harder to anesthetize even with Novocaine. And she was also pregnant. So I was forbidden forbidden to use the primary point because it's forbidden in the first trimester of pregnancy because it can bring on a period, as we say. And so so that failed. I I wasn't able to anesthetize her. Oh, but if I were pregnant, I would take the acupuncture before I would take the uh, the Novocaine and everything. <laughs> well, it depends, you, you know. But then if you started cramping and had a miscarriage, you might not be too happy about that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I that, know. Is an, that is an important point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's one of the things that I think uh, we need to recognize in Western medicine, that mm-hmm. there is an effect that what happens in terms of even the entire process of, of pregnancy, I have... I had a client that was trying to get pregnant, a, a couple. They were trying to get pregnant, and they were unable to with a number of things until we added, you know, of course we went over nutrition and a number of things, but finally we added uh, herbal Chinese medicines, and uh, she got pregnant and had a beautiful child. Yeah. So mm-hmm. the concept of, as you said before, flipping uh, the fetus, yeah. Uh, there's a there's a number of things and the warnings that clearly there's some reaction in there. Yeah. Well, I've used it I've used it for induction and labor on many occasions. Mm-hmm. It's the other area that we talk about. What other areas do you uh, see that Western medicine seems to be uh, amenable to acupuncture? More and more in a lot of areas, actually. So, but for me, uh, for my practice, it's mostly orthopedic. That I'm seeing the that the, uh, you know for pain related to orthopedic problems, especially chronic problems, mm-hmm. and uh, amenable. And I tell you, there's one condition now. Now that you now that you have uh, a cyclovir, uh, sh- uh, what's it? Bell's Rejection. palsy. Bell's palsy is not as much of a con- problem with uh, steroids and a cyclovir, but be- prior to the use of that antiviral. There was not much treatment at all in Western medicine for Bell's palsy, and I wish more doctors knew how well acupuncture treated it. We look at that as wind trapped in the system. Wind is manifested by deviations anywhere on the body. And when you see one side of the face dropping, it's a wind problem. And almost all of the people I've treated with Bell's palsy will 
eventually go back and attribute it to that. One guy was a musician who was on the road and fell asleep with his cheek on the cold window of a truck. Another woman was sitting in front of a ceiling fan. Ralph Nader, who had Bell's palsy, claimed that he got it after falling asleep with his cheek against the window of an airplane. Hmm. This is cold wind penetrating the channels. Whether that turns into a virus, maybe it does. I don't, you know, know. But it's if we start within the first month, it's well treated with Chinese medicine. Mm-hmm. If you wait for a long time afterwards, it's not. Another way of looking at the wind in the system is the tongue. Somebody will stick their tongue out and it will deviate and point to one side. That tells you that there's wind trapped in the system. People with seizures tend to have a deviated tongue. Seizures are a manifestation of wild internal wind in their body. The environment can be manifest in the body. Hot, cold, damp, and wind. Speaking speaking of that, what you said that you wished that Western physicians knew more about acupuncture and certain things that we do. Or yeah. Bell's palsy. What other areas do you wish that Western medicine doctors knew about? Uh, I guess I wish they knew that it was more than just acupuncture. Mm. That Oriental medicine included many things, included not only herbs and acupuncture and cupping and a variety of physical things on the body, but it includes dietary analysis, not just a healthy diet, but the right diet for that person's constitution. As healthy as a raw salad is, some people shouldn't be eating raw salads. Um, mm-hmm. And some people need to be getting more protein. If they can find it, if they're in their hearts, they can eat an animal and they can find an animal that was treated well, it would probably be good for them. So another thing, uh, I sometimes I find myself taking on the role of an occupational therapist, mm-hmm. and it's just and it's just by intuition in the seat of my pants. I'm not trained in it, but it's if I'm treating somebody with chronic pain, I am not doing my job if I just give them acupuncture, herbs, and cups, and moxa, and massage, and tuina, and all that. I need to find out what they're doing that's contributing to their pain. And if I don't do that, I'm irresponsible. And if they're working at a computer, I ask them to emulate, where's the mouse? Where's the screen? What are you positioning you in? Where's your back? Mm-hmm. I, ha- I think that's part of their problem. I have to do that. Mm-hmm. What, I got to share one brief case. It just happened this January. A guy came in for acute low back. He generally has subtle low back aches. He's not in the greatest shape. But periodically, every few years, he comes in for an acute relapse. And I looked at his chart, and I noticed that every year that he came in, it was always in the first two weeks of January. So I started thinking, wow, what is this? And so I, so I just said to him, do you put up Christmas lights? And I could see his whole body tense up. And I said, are they all tangled? And are you bent over the ground? I hate Christmas lights. I hate untangling them. I hate getting on the ladder with them. And every year, without fail, two weeks after Christmas, he's got severe low back, cute low back pain. So I gave him, I gave him doctor's orders. Tell your wife, you are not allowed to put up Christmas lights anymore. Because I knew he wouldn't be the kind of guy to do it calmly. Is this Grinch medicine? (laughs) whatever you want to call it it was just an interesting hit that i think was accurate wow um dan how about children i mean we've talked about treating adults and and things like that how about children have you treated children 
I'm glad you brought it up. Many of them, everybody from babies mm-hmm. all the way through teenagers. And there's a there's a treatment style in Japan. The Japanese word for it is shonishin. And shonishin means children's needle. And you don't always puncture the skin with a child. Children are so affected by the slightest little thing. The needles are spring-loaded, little things that look like uh, they're brass and copper, and they look like little breaks and little tappers. And you just go to regions of their body affected and vigorously and very gently tap or stroke or Mm. scrape so it doesn't hurt. Easy to get compliance. I have so many of these Shoni Shin tools. I'll let them pick the tool they want me to use on them. And that really helps with the children to be compliant. It works for hyperactivity. There's something the Japanese have a term for that, kanmushishu, which is where the the energy rises up and gets them all uh, fidgety. And you do a lot of, I can put my arm out here, you do a lot of vigorous vigorous scraping in a downward direction with a little metal tool on their arm. And it just takes the energy out and calms them down. Mm. And you teach it to the parents. They can do it with common household items, which is what I do. Babies can have a needle that goes in and just comes right out. You never insert it and expect them to stay still. And it doesn't require too many needles. Babies also, you can, if they're very hot, Mm. you can... Uh, prick their finger and just let a teeny little bit of blood out. It takes the heat out of a sore throat. It calms ear infections. Makes It takes the heat away. Fevers are a good thing. Fevers are important. But a fever that goes too long in a baby could lead to convulsions. So you have to know when to do it and when not to do it. Mm-hmm. I love treating children's and babies for a variety of things. Usually it's lung-related, skin-related, intestine-related, or fever-related. Mm. When I've when I've seen children and babies, mm, wonderful. And and what about um, what I sort of call preventative, but which is really wellness, is keeping your body as as the best you can in balance. Um, do you suggest that for a lot of your clients? All of them. <laughs> That's a good doctor doesn't want that person to be their patient anymore. <laughs> so. <In> real- <laughs> So, yeah, that would involve everybody gets talked about, about how to how to breathe, how to eat, how to move, how to stretch, how not to stretch. Mm-hmm. And uh, hopefully they take their lessons and uh, and do them. And some people are much more compliant and more proactive than others. Mm-hmm. Another curious thing I'm just going to pop into my mind is, on the other hand, the type of patient I prefer almost prefer to work with for some reason is a non-believer and a skeptic. <laughs> and it's, it's because their expectations are lower. They don't believe what I'm doing. So if I give them a treatment and give them a few suggestions and they start feeling better, they really run with it. But someone who's the total believer and has been to everybody, I can't change their life. It's, it's a, it's an, an interesting conundrum. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's, that is very interesting. So, so would um, do you suggest people have uh, treatments like once a month or anything like that, just to keep the the chi flowing? And good question. It depends on the person. Mm-hmm. In China, that's not the way it's done. It's acupuncture is not used preventively. Acupuncture is done, you know, every other day for two or three weeks until you're fine and you go back to work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This country has much more maintenance and prevention than China does. And so, yes, in this country with the type of client we see who's in a, who is perhaps not doing good prevention at home, then checking in once or twice a month 
is probably a good idea for either acupuncture, herbs, or advice, or mm -hmm. body work, or something. And I do have some patients who like to do that because they know themselves and checking in keeps them on track. Yeah. But in, ter in terms of acupuncture, I think that's, you know, not that, not that critical, not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. I just love the feel of acupuncture. <laughs> oh, me, too, me too. I'm glad to hear that. A lot of people are very fearful of needles. They've been lied to by doctors giving mm -hmm. them an shot. This won't hurt a bit. And, you know, they... And it's difficult to work with that. I try to get them to accept one, and I'll tell them, if you don't like it, I'm not going to continue. I'm going to be as gentle as I possibly can. But a lot of people stay away because of needle phobia. Yes, I'm glad, yes. I'm glad to hear you like it. Oh, love it. Love it. Especially now that the needles are so fine. <laughs> my, sometimes when I'm giving my wife acupuncture, she, refer, she refers to it as the Valium drip. She feels something start to happen in her body where everything just melts oh yes yes well, because everything opens and it just there's a calmness that comes through the body it's magnificent that's, that, that's partly your opiates that are getting released you know if you want to look at it as a chemical thing mm, i would love to it's have it chief, chief flowing and opiate release oh you know? yes yes that's very exciting <laughs> and we need our fix different kind of needles <laughs> And speaking of needles, and I want to, Glenn, if you don't mind, I'd like to go back to our previous thing about studies and sham acupuncture. There's also a style of study, which is to use something that the people think is an acupuncture needle, but nothing is actually penetrating. And they've devised these devices that feel like a needle is going in, but it doesn't. Hmm. Ted Kapchuk is an acupuncturist and an author, and now he's teaching at Harvard Med. He is the only non-PhD, non-MD on faculty at Harvard Med. And his specialty right now is placebo. And he's a very fascinating guy. And he kind of felt after a while, a number of years of doing acupuncture, that it wasn't the acupuncture that was doing anything. It was the relationship between himself and his patient. Mm. So he is devising all kinds of studies specifically to study placebo and nocebo, the reverse placebo. Oh. I've listened to him a number of times, and he's an uh, he interesting does, guy. He does have he? a very good book uh, about the the web. The web that has no weaver was an acupuncture text that he wrote. Yes, right. It's very good. Listen, I would be remiss for all of uh, the people out there that are listening who have pets that mm -hmm. have taken their pets to psychiatrists and go to <laughs> horse whisperers. Do you do any acupuncture on pets? I love to, and I used to, but I'm not allowed to. In California, you must be a licensed vet to do it. <clears throat> so I've done a few backyard treatments on dogs with hip arthritis for neighbors, for not, you know, for fun. But, but I, I don't do that anymore. Um, one of the things I did when I was an acupuncture student, 1980, 1981, I started wondering, well, how much of what I'm doing is placebo? And I thought the best way to find out was to check out veterinary acupuncture. So I apprenticed with a veterinary acupuncturist. One was an acupuncturist who did veterinary acupuncture. The other was a vet who did veterinary acupuncture, Dr. John Ottaviano and John Craig. Oh, Do you know John Ottaviano? Oh, yes. I mean, 20 some odd years ago, they were here in Los Angeles. Right, Sherman Oaks Veterinary Clinic, yes. and I, I worked there treating dogs and cats. I went around with Ottaviano to treat racehorses on ranches in Malibu, and I saw these animals getting better, and mm -hmm. animals don't have any stuff about anything. They are just there. Yes. They don't have any 
not wanting to get better, wanting to get better, ulterior motives, secondary gay. They don't have any of that stuff. And when I, I disagree. Saw, I would think my cats had ulterior <laughs> motives. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess cats. And I know one of your dogs. The, uh, <laughs> yeah, we, he Right now, he's at doggy daycare. I couldn't risk being here at home with him in the house because he goes off when a leaf drops outside. Uh, what's, our, what's our very fec- affectionate name for him? Oh, I don't know, Satan. <laughs> His name is Spud. He's a, he's a terrier, but he's more of a terrorist. He, it's all right. We don't need to talk dogs here. But uh, I, I, veter, I the, when I first the first time I walked into the Sherman Oaks Veterinary Acupuncture Clinic, there were six tables in one room. Yeah. The tables did not were not stainless steel. They were soft vinyl topped. And there were five animals on the tables, all in treatment, all at the same time. The table to my left, as I first walked in, was a cat lying on its side with acupuncture needles in its paw with electric acupuncture there. So its paw was shaking to the frequency. In the table right next to the cat was a Doberman standing on his tiptoes, standing on the table with needles in. And the cat was fine. The Doberman was fine, although looking a little tense. There were other animals, and then these people walked in with a golden retriever, tail tucked between its legs, ears pinned back. This dog sniffed the room, took a look around the room, saw the cat, saw the Doberman, saw all these animals, and immediately I saw this dog totally relaxed. Tail came up, ears got normal. It was an amazing experience. Oh, my goodness. And how long did you work with them? Probably about four months just volunteering in the clinic and then going around helping out treating the racehorses. Oh, how magnificent. Does the same uh, applications of tongue diagnosis and pulse apply? In, in, no. Uh, nope. Um, Strict, strictly symptoms and observation and palpation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, they, they, were, they were amazing, uh, Glenn. Um, uh, Dr. Ottaviano gave me my first dowsing rod. Yes. <laughs> John Craig was the dowser. I guess he, John uh, Taviano picked it up from Dr. Craig. Yes, yes, it was amazing. And uh, it was, uh, I had a dog that I sort of adopted and took on that had this awful um, bronchial uh, infection or, or, or situation where for years it had been given, you know, steroids and steroids. And I just said, we got to stop with these steroids with this dog that I had shipped out from New York. And uh, um, uh, Dr. John Ottaviano, I think, believe it was John Ottaviano. He's the el- elder of the two. No, that would, no, that was John Craig, the vet. John Craig. He actually took um, a specimen of, of the dog's mucus, grew the bacteria, injected it back into the dog. And for once in, the do- <laughs> once in this dog's it was an older dog already. She was 14 years old. For once in its life, it, it was able to breathe and actually drink water again. And I actually was able to keep her alive till she was almost another three years. Actually, we could yeah. even run two miles together. And she was a little palm. Yeah, <laughs> let's, let's see if I've learned anything from uh, Dan. <laughs> Clearly, the dog was grieving until it right. met you. Yeah. <laughs> that was. And it was happy. There's a long history of of, uh, of pox planting and mucus planting for uh, like like people use vaccinations now. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I guess and John was probably doing something like that. It was not a Italian. It was John Craig who used the dowsing rod. And I saw him do amazing things. Some of these things, my jaw just has, has still has not come up, but I saw him do with that dowsing rod. Yeah. Yeah. I still have that rod. <laughs> how are you? How are you with it? Um, well, I, I moved from that to a pendulum. It was a smaller, okay. more compact, and I could carry yeah. it everywhere I go. <laughs> I don't know how many stories you want from this vet clinic. I've got a couple, but if you if we want to move on, I won't do them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we shall. That'll we'll be go. another story, another show. Uh, for our third hour, right. I would. <laughs> uh, we talk about the immune system a lot, and there are many diseases now, especially chronic diseases, that we're seeing that the immune system seems to be highly involved, where it's turning against our own bodies. And we have spoken in other uh, cases in the past about the immune system. How does acupuncture work in terms of the whole organism and the immune system? And is there any science involved in that? Wow. Well, the, way, the immune system is a form of chi called wei chi. It flows at the surface and it protects us. I wanted that to be my personalized license plate. I figured it would protect my car, but they'd all been used. There's enough acupuncturists who wanted Wei Chi on their car, and I couldn't get it. Um, uh, so this is – this is immune building is usually done with herbal medicine, uh, but you have to be very careful. You can't build the immune system while the body is fighting a pathogen mm. because the tonifying herbs will be used to make the pathogen stronger. So if there's an order of operations, first you have to work to clear the pathogen out of the body and then you work to build immunity. And it's, a, it's always touch and go. The, if you're working to build immunity, they might start getting worse again because the pathogen built up and then you have to work to clear the pathogen, whether it's a damp heat pathogen or something like that. Hmm. There are some herb formulas that are used for people who get low-level chronic illnesses for a long period of time, and those do a combination of gently clear pathogen while also tonify the uh, Wei Qi. Hmm. But I would say acupuncture is important for symptomatology uh, and also for building immunity, for instance, in in cancer patients, when they're getting chemotherapy, you don't want to build the immune system right away because that would be contradictory to what the chemotherapy is trying to do until, of course, we get better targeted chemotherapy that just goes after the tumor and not the whole body. And mm-hmm. boy, I'm reading about bacteria. Glenn, have you seen that information? About uh, genet- genetically engineering bacteria to bring chemotherapy right to a tumor. It was fascinating stuff. Wow. Anyway. Not just, not just bacteria, also viruses. Yeah, viruses too. It's a fascinating. That, that kind of treatment is amazing to me. But so anyway, with chemotherapy, people generally, uh, this different type, but we'll often get it maybe once every three weeks. The first week after chemotherapy, you work for nausea and just for a little bit of detoxifying. The next week, a little of the same. In the third week, you use yang energy points and wei qi points to build their immunity back up before the next chemotherapy knocks it down again. What are the things that we need to be uh, concerned about acupuncture with? As in possible complications? Correct. Okay. Well, that's for the acupuncturist to certainly know. 
Um, the medical complications would be pneumothorax, and we have to know when we do not insert a needle uh, perpendicularly in the upper in the upper chest or the upper back. Just, and, and, just to interrupt for one moment, for those that may not know, a pneumothorax is when the lung collapses, mm. so it gets you. punctured like a balloon. And even though the needle is so thin, it can still do that. Um, another possible complication would be death. If one needled a point above the first cervical vertebrae in an upward direction. Yamen is the name of the point in Chinese, Du 15, the door of mutinous, and uh, yeah, it hit the brainstem. So we, we, know where to go. we know where to go shallowly and where to go to the proper angle. There are minor complications. The only one that I ever get is hematoma, which is a local little blood blister at the site of the needle. What happens is the needle hits this tiny vessel. I take the needle out. The needle is so delicate it doesn't even bleed, but a little pool of blood forms under the skin. And a little bubble kind of happens. It doesn't come out. If I see that right away, exert steady pressure on it, maybe rub a little heat on, nothing happens. If I miss it, you'll be left with a bruise for a few days, a non-tender bruise. Hmm. Possible complication is irritating a nerve, which could give nerve pain in that area for a, for a while after the treatment if you move a certain way. That's happened once to me. I've never done it to anybody else, fortunately. And to me, the most common complication is from the acupuncturist not paying attention to the patient in front of them. In other words, I have somebody with a weak pulse, a pale tongue, and I use too and they're they're deficient. I use too many needles and I leave them in too long and mm -hmm. I take them out and they can barely get off the table. They're dizzy and they're lightheaded. They've had too much chi drained out of their body. People who are excessed, red face, loud voice, tend to high blood pressure, more needles, more time, the better for them. So that's that's mm. that's also part of it is giving the wrong treatment to the wrong patient. Mm -hmm. Not not really a medical complication. That's an energetic complication. Now, what if uh, what does it mean when you withdraw the needle and then blood comes out right after you withdraw the needle? Is there any meaning behind that? Well, if you're intending to draw blood because there's an excess you're trying to let out, that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. But if you're not trying to draw blood, the meaning is that you can't see every little capillary in there and it hit one and the point bled and you put cotton on it and you stop it. So, no, there's no, I, I don't see a meaning. I do sometimes use ear acupuncture and if an ear point bleeds, I kind of feel like that might have been important that there was some excess that needed to come out of that area. Mm -hmm. But most of the points that we intend to bleed are around the fingertips or tips of the toes. A lot of times, if you have the acupuncture needle in a capillary or a small blood vessel, it's by keeping it in there, it will keep it from bleeding. And when you actually do remove it, then it releases right. uh, that, that process. And we should tell everybody that nowadays, all acupuncture needles are individual and sterilized and not reused. Correct. So there's, there should be no problem with that. Yes, they all, they go into it. They they get used once. They go into a sharps container and get incinerated. Mm -hmm. Even though there's very little chance of nil chance of them transmitting anything because it's a solid shaft. There's no place to harbor anything on it. Mm -hmm. But still, but we still practice proper uh, hygiene and sterile technique. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh my! 
Well, How does one find an acupuncturist? My f- best way is by word of mouth or medical referral. Although in the modern age, people use their smartphone. <laughs> um, I was, I was, I, I recently got a uh, a cold call from somebody regarding my web page, saying that my web page wouldn't read well on a smartphone, and he wanted me to hire him to redesign my web page so people could find me from their smartphone easier. <laughs> On my end, I could see people using a smartphone to find a restaurant, but not an acupuncturist, you know. Yeah. But I do, I, do get, I do get people who find me from the Internet, and I would never do that, but people do. Someone needs to ask Siri if she has an acupuncturist nearby. <laughs> <laughs> now you're getting scary. <laughs> Dan, uh, in our last uh, talk, I got the opportunity to ask you for a health tip, but since we're taking another hour with you, I'm wondering if there's a possibility that you may have a second tip for us. Yes. Oh, excellent. Um, Saliva. Saliva is a precious fluid. It contains amylase, which breaks down carbohydrates. Too many people eat too fast and don't chew enough. And... (sighs) Saliva is critical. When people say don't eat fast, they say it like because it's impolite or whatever. But there's a medical reason. And as much saliva as you can generate, especially when eating complex carbohydrates like grain or pasta or rice, it will be broken down before it gets to your stomach if you're willing to chew and salivate. Saliva can be used to clean your teeth. It's an incredibly precious fluid. Um, here's Here's the tip. If you don't have a toothbrush and you want to want, and you want to clean your teeth, you use the tip of your tongue and take it and run it all the way from your molars to molar, from one side to the other across the outside of your front teeth. Nine times, your tongue will get tired. Then do it on the inside of the front teeth, all the way from molar to molar, nine times. Then the outside of the lower teeth, then the inside of the lower teeth. Your tongue will be tired, and you will have a mouthful of saliva. You swish that saliva around and bathe your teeth into it, and then swallow it in three swallows. That's your Taoist saliva toothbrush. Wow. That also sounds like a a yoga facial exercise. It does, doesn't it? It's exhausting to the tongue. We don't usually use it that way. Wow. A great tip. That is great. We have to like we have to type that out and put it on a different area of the site. <laughs> I think we should have a video of it. <laughs> Compliments of Dr. Glenn Woolman. <laughs> Jagger to do the video. Well, I'm very grateful to my special guest, uh, Dr. Dan Diamond, uh, for sharing his wisdom and expertise with us today and last week. And I would like to, again, thank all of my healers and all of my teachers. I look forward to seeing all of you next week in another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. But until that time, I wish you all optimal health. Thank Thank you, Dan. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you, Dan. Honored to have you back again. And thank you, Glenn, for a wonderful show. (laughs) Many blessings, Christina. Blessings to you.